Uh, so tonight, we're going to be jumping back into the book of Matthew. And uh, yeah, oh yeah, I'm excited too. Thank God bless you. Okay, we're going to be jumping back in the book of Matthew. If um, you don't know, kind of what we do here is um, we have been going through Matthew for an entire year now. <laughs> It's a long time. And uh, so we've been going through Matthew. It's officially been a year, and uh, we'll take breaks along the way, but we're, um, we're nine chapters into Matthew. So we got a couple more years to go, but hey, it's going to be good. And so we're going to be uh, jumping back into Matthew, Matthew 9, verse 27. If you got your Bibles, uh, you got your Bible app, whatever it is that you use, uh, please pull that out so you can follow along. But uh, we're going we're gonna to jump back into this. Okay, so Matthew 9, 27. It's a pretty familiar story, so we're going to take a look at it. It starts like this. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out. Now, uh, if you have a different translation, yours may say something like, instead of calling out, it may say shouting or crying aloud. And so if you're looking at this text and you're thinking about kind of the imagery of what's happening here is these guys, um, they're, they're like really desperate in these moments. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those desperate moments before, but um, I, I told you guys last week that I had, uh, that I had knee surgery. And last week, um, it's not often that you just feel like, I think I might die right now, um, but I'm pretty sure I might be the first person to die from uh, knee surgery because that's, that's exactly where I was. For the first 48 hours after my knee surgery, I'm laying in bed and I'm watching the clock just waiting to take um, another uh, painkiller uh, because I am, I'm pretty sure I'm dying. And I'm just crying out to Lord, Lord, just take me now. You know, like just take me now, just let it be over. I'm sorry these kids have to be orphans, but this knee is just really killing me right now. Okay, I'm a little dramatic, but... These guys right here, they are desperate to have Jesus um, intercede, to, to work in their life. And here's the, here's the re reality of this, is when I look at this, um, there is very few times in my life, and this is probably true of you, if you, maybe you've never even done this, is you have been so desperate to see God at work that you were literally crying for him to show up. I mean, think about it. Have you ever had moments like this? Maybe you've had a couple before, but it's very few and far between. And what's interesting about this is, is we live in a culture in which we have, and I talked a little bit about it this morning, if you were at this morning services, is the illusion of self-sufficiency, is that because of where we live here in America, we believe that we are able to fend for ourselves, that we're able to take care of ourselves because um, we have been so incredibly blessed financially and with, with medicine and technology that we kind of have bought into, uh, maybe not consciously, that we don't need God. So a couple of stats real quick is... Um, I shared this morning that there's this huge uh, debate that's been happening for the last few years, and you remember there's a movement called Occupy Wall Street in which people were protesting, and the reason they were protesting was because of income inequality in America. And yes, there obviously is income inequality, but I don't really want to get into that because here's what the irony of the whole thing is, is they're angry because 1% of Americans own so much of the, the, the land, and they have so much of the wealth here in America. But this is the irony, is the very people who are complaining that the 1% has too much wealth, they in fact are the 1% of the rest of the world. So if you make $34,000, which is kind of an entry-level salary for most Americans, if you make $34,000, you are in the top 1% of the world. You are richer than 99% of the rest of humanity. That is just mind-boggling to me. In fact, if you, um, even if you don't consider yourself 
wealthy, if you were in the bottom 5%, the bottom 5% of Americans, which we probably, if you live in the area, you are not, if you were in the bottom 5%, you are still wealthier than 68% of the world. The poorest in America are the, uh, as wealthy as the richest in India. We have incredible amounts of wealth. That 50% of the 1% of the world live right here in the United States. That's all of us. And so there's this, there's this struggle between where we are incredibly blessed, but then also this blessings that we have sometimes turns into um, this illusion that we have control over our lives, that we are autonomous and that we get to decide what is right for us, how we're going to live, and that we can push God out of our lives. And we see this on a societal level, as we see in America, that we have become, um, or at least we have the illusion of self-sufficiency. And the only thing that really kind of shakes us out of this is when something bad happens in our life. It's oftentimes during those moments in which something tragic happens or, or something unexpected happens that we begin to think, oh, you know what? Maybe I really do need God. Maybe I still am dependent upon him. Maybe just having some money and having the food and shelter and all those things that I, that I don't have to rely on daily for God to provide, maybe that's not all there is to this life. Maybe I still really do need God. Well, these guys, they're, they're very much in touch with the needs that they have because they're very kind of, uh, they're very close to their needs. And so here's what happens. They shout out, Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. When they say son of David, this is actually a theological confession. They're saying that um, Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah is someone that the Jews had been anticipating and expecting and had been promised and for hundreds of years had been expecting that he would be this uh, religious or this political leader that would rise up and he would bring peace and he would bring um, the nation of Israel back to power and that he would rule over it and that he would defeat the enemies of Israel. And so they believed that Jesus was this person. And because he was this person, he also had ability to do things like heal people. And so they thought, okay, if Jesus is the Messiah then, and I'm blind, he's going to be the one that's going to be able to cure me. And so uh, what's happening here is actually a bigger picture of what's happening in the rest of the world. And so let me, let me explain. Is right in the story, uh, Jesus is bringing sight to the blind. But that is not like what he ultimately came to do. It's kind of an analogy of what he came to do because not only did he want to bring sight to the physically blind, but ultimately he came to bring uh, sight to the spiritually blind, which is all of us. The scripture teaches us, and this is kind of a, uh, this is definitely not a popular belief, but it's something uh, that you, fundamental to Christian theology in which we are all born spiritually blind, that none of us can see God for who he truly is. So let me dissect this a little bit and break it down. Is a, the, the fact that we are all born spiritually blind uh, means that, at least on one level, that there is more to sight than just physically seeing things. And all of us know this to be true, right? Is if you think about uh, times in your life, you have come to see things differently or see things for the first time that you didn't see previously, and, so, and, and it had nothing to do with your physical sight. So um, it's kind of fun watching, uh, the, the, especially high schoolers graduate become young adults, and then eventually at some point uh, move out of the house and begin to have to pay their own bills. Now, um, 
it's an exciting time because I just love seeing the absolute shock and awe and desperation come over young adults when they move out and they start to get their own bills. Like, it's just an incredible experience. It's so fun because the, the, the rent is due and you have to pay for your insurance now. And then all of a sudden, like, you have to uh, provide your own food. And so you start eating ramen noodles. It's just, it's a great experience watching people for the first time kind of venture out on their own. And here's what's funny is it doesn't matter if they had parents who sat them down and said, okay, let's come up with a budget. Okay, let's look at what it's really going to look like for you to live on your own. And you go through the budget and you're like, oh my goodness, whoa, wow, I'd have to pay for that? Like, that's crazy. You know, that's not free. And so they go through the budget, but you you may see on the paper that you're going to have to live by this budget and things are going to cost certain things. But then all of a sudden, when you begin to experience it, you have a perspective change. You begin to see things, especially uh, the cost of living, very differently. And it's not that you have new information. It's that, your, it's that your, your perspective has changed. You begin to realize and see the things that your parents were talking about before. See, we have these perspective changes. We see things differently throughout different stages of our life. Let me give you maybe a better example. Is, um, you probably have either yourself or you've seen one of your friends be in a relationship in which everyone around them was saying, they're a loser, okay? Do not date them. You need to break up with them. You're better than that. Please, please, for all that is good, do not hang out with them any longer. And for some reason, you're blinded, right? Or they're blinded, and they're just like, but I love them. You know, they're just so special to me. And so... And so you can't see what everybody else in the world sees, that the, this person is a loser. And then fast forward, the, you know, it's been a disaster. You break up. You look back at the relationship and go, how was I so blind? How could I not see what everybody else was seeing? It's because we are, have this, this ability to see or to be blind to certain things in our life that is far beyond uh, our physical sight. And so just like we're able to see these different things in our life and we're able to have these perspective changes, Jesus is saying, now I'm going to bring to you sight that is going to be different than all of those other things because it's going to bring you spiritual sight, that you don't see things spiritually that you need to be able to see. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way for a blind person to go, oh, I'm just going to try super hard and not be blind today. That's not how it works. If it were, I would have two eyes instead of one. It's, it's this, I have one eye, by the way, just uh, we won't get into it. One eye and one leg. I am so lucky right now. Um, anyway, it's like an old joke. Anyway, so um, where was I? Yes. Men's natural state is a, spir- is a state of spiritual blindness, is we just can't, when we are born, in our natural state, see spiritual things. At least not see things the way that they really are. That we were born with what's called original sin, and because of this, it corrupts um, our ability to sense the divine, to be able to see God for who he truly is, and also be able to see ourselves for who we truly are. And so... There's this weird, uh, kind of this weird tension that's within man, that on one hand, we are very spiritual beings, and there is something within us that we are predisposed to believe in a higher power, to believe in God. Like if you went to, you know, a local restaurant around here, and you started to survey the people in here, and you say, hey, do you believe in God? Uh, Statistics show roughly 96% of them would say, yes, I believe in God. And so on one hand, there is this something inside of us that says that I, I do believe in God. 
But then, if you went back and you asked those same people a more specific question is, not only do you believe in God, but do you believe that God was made known through the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, and it's only through him that you can be saved? They would go, uh, no. <laughs> you know, like, I haven't even really thought about that before. You know, like, I believe in a higher power, and he loves me the way that I am, and as far as the Jesus thing goes, he was great, but I'm not sure if I can go that far. And it's because there's this tension within us that says, on one hand, we believe in God, we know there's something out there, there's a higher power, and yet we cannot see that that God is uh, manifested in the person of Jesus, or is made known in the person of Jesus. And so there's this blindness that we have in which, in our natural state, we just simply cannot see God. And we experience this all over. If you've ever uh, been at family dinner or you've been, you know, during the holidays or you sat down for coffee with a friend of yours who's, who's not a Christian or a family member a Christian and you start to talk about, you know, God and you talk about Jesus, there's this moment, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, there's this moment in which it just seems so incredibly obvious to you that, like, God is real and that Jesus is our Savior. And you're like laying out like, look, look around, you know, and you're just trying to use common sense to say like God exists, and they just cannot see it. Like it is the most frustrating thing in the world. It's kind of like trying to help someone find their cell phone as they're talking on it. You're kind of just like, okay, look, okay, oh my gosh, I'm so mad right now. You know, it just, it's a frustrating experience. And you think it's plain as day, like how do you not see this as truth? And yet they're going, I just don't see it. I don't know what you're talking. It's simply not there. And it's because in our natural state, we can't see it. Without God giving us the gift of faith, without opening our eyes and removing our spiritual blinders, we cannot see the things of God. It continues on in verse 28. It says, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And so here Jesus in this uh, scene gives us kind of an insight into the nature of biblical faith. And biblical faith is really very, is close to or even synonymous with trust. And culture defines when they look at religious faith or they look at biblical faith um, and your friends may say you have faith, is, is they're really describing something that's called blind faith. And blind faith is you believe in God or you believe in Jesus or whatever, you're a Christian, um, not because there's good reasons to be a Christian or not because it makes sense, but because that's just like your, that's like your thing, right? There's not really a good reason. It's just blind faith. You just trust in it and you hope that it's correct. But that's the, that is not at all what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is actually much more analogous to the kind of faith that I have in my wife. The reason why I trust my wife, the reason why we're married and I can put my trust in her is not because it's a blind trust. It's not just like, oh, I don't know, I hope, she's, you know, I hope it works out. And I go, let's go for it. No, 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 no. The reason why I trust my wife, the reason I have faith in her, is for a num- number of reasons. One, because I know her character. I know what kind of character she has. I know what kind of person she does. I know that she doesn't keep secrets. I know that she doesn't have this, like, this secret life. I know, I know who she is. I know her heart. I know that she loves me. I know that she loves our kids. I know that she loves the Lord. I know that um, her goal in life is to be a great follower of Christ and to be a great mother and a great, lo- uh, and a great wife. I know her past experiences. I know that she's reliable, that she hasn't lied to me. I know that she's trustworthy. The reason why um, I trust my wife is because I have reason to trust in her. See, the same thing is true of biblical faith. Biblical faith doesn't just say, okay, take this leap, you know, with no reason to to trust God or to trust Jesus. It's much more 
uh, like my wife is. I trust Jesus because of who he is. I trust his character. When I read about the person of Jesus, I look at this person and I say, this is a person who has turned the world upside down, who has brought teachings that are so profound that the smartest people in the world have been studying it for 2,000 years and still are amazed by what he has to say. I look at his love and I look at his compassion, but I also look at the authority that he has and the insight into the human dilemma. And I look at the way that he answers life's biggest questions of where we've come from and what happens when we die and how we're supposed to live and what's the whole meaning and purpose of this. When I have to wrestle with the deep questions, Jesus has not only answers, but they're coherent and they're consistent. And so when people ask, well, why do you have faith? It's because I trust this person. I trust the person of Jesus, and I've, had, I've seen him work. I've seen him transform lives. I've seen him uh, in my own life do crazy things, take me from a total jerk to a somewhat jerk, and hopefully not a jerk one day, you know? And I just, I've seen him at work before, and I've seen, him, I've seen what he can do, and so that's why I have faith. And so really what he's, what he's doing here is when he asks these lepers, hey, do you think that I can do this? He's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you have faith that I can make this happen for you? And he continues on, their story continues on. They say, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. See, Jesus came to, to restore our sight, and he came to show us two things about ourselves and about God. One, he came to show us that we're sinners, that we are messed up, that we have rebelled against our creator. And the other is that Christ can offer us a way back, a, a road back to knowing God, salvation. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and, and he begins to, to open our eyes to spiritual things, we'll begin to see things about ourselves. Like we'll begin to see things like, I think most people in the world would say that they're not perfect, right? I don't think anyone would go, no, I'm, yeah, I'm there. I'm actually, yeah, I'm perfect. It's crazy. Um, Mr. Perfect, that's me. I don't think anyone is there. But I think the depth of understanding our imperfection is what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to help us see spiritual things. And everybody goes, yeah, I've made some mistakes. I've done some things I'm not too proud of. But then when the Holy Spirit comes, it gives us this conviction of sin that goes, oh my gosh, like I thought I was kind of messed up and like there was some stuff not right about me, but like I am, I'm close to psychopath, okay? Like I'm close to, maybe not that bad, but like I'm close, like when I look at what is truly in the depths of my heart, it's a little bit scary because even the good things that I do, even the stuff where I'm nice to people and I help people out and all the good acts that I'm doing, I realize I did those for selfish ambition, I did those to make myself feel better, to make me look good. There was nothing good down in my heart that made me do these things out of compassion. It was really out of selfish ambition. And so you begin to have this conviction of sin that you realize, not only am I imperfect, but I am more flawed than I could have ever imagined. That's on one hand what happens when we begin to see what, uh, we begin to remove this spiritual blindness. But then also at the same time, God comes in and he goes, now, now that you have seen who you truly are, you can see who I truly am and what I am offering to you, which is grace, which is salvation, which is a way for us to be reconciled. Continues on, Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. Now, that's kind of weird. If you don't know much about the Bible, you go, wait a minute. Jesus heals these guys, and then he tells them, shh, our secret, right? That's weird. Why would he do that? I don't understand. Wouldn't you want the, like, if I were doing, like, miracles, I would want it to be on YouTube for everybody to see, and you could be like, wow, that Cody's a miracle worker. And I'd be like, I'll charge you for it, you know? Um, 
But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about this. It's because Jesus has uh, this game plan in which he knows ultimately he is there to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified and then he's going to rise again so that he can uh, forgive us of our sins. So he's got this like ultimate game plan. He's got a journey to Jerusalem in his mind and he, he, it's actually, you can see geographically him kind of uh, circling around it and not going into Jerusalem until it was his time. And so he doesn't want the word to get out that he is the Messiah, that he is the one they maneuver because because he knows that once they figure that out, he's going to be crucified. And so he goes, keep it on the DL because it's not time for me yet. It's not time for them to know who I really am. And I love this because um, we think of Jesus as meek and mild, and he's just, he's a sweetheart, you know, like I love Jesus. He's like an old school hippie. And so we look at this and he says, uh, it says that he warned them sternly. Have you ever been warned sternly before? Probably when you were a kid, right? You're just like, oh, 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 sorry, <laughs> my bad. You know, like that's. As, that's stern. He, like, Jesus is no punk, you know? He's like, listen, I don't know if he, like, threatened. I'm reading in between the lines here, but I kind of like it. Um, he's like, look, I'll probably have to sock you in the throat if you go ahead and tell people, okay? <laughs> that's my interpretation, or that's what I would say. Anyway, so verse 31 continues on. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. What the frick, dude? So these guys are warned. Don't go and tell people, and they go, Got it. We're going to go tell everybody we know, right? What the heck? What are these people thinking? And, and here's what's interesting about this is, is this is, on one hand, this is incredibly dangerous. Because what they, have, what they have done here is these people have been gifted by God, and in return, they go and do their own thing. Jesus tells them to do one thing, and yet they go and they do the exact opposite. And here's the problem. This is so many of us. I'm about to get in your kitchen. Okay, this is, this is like where we are. Many of us would say, yes, I'm a Jesus follower. I love Jesus. Amen. I love that last song. I'm going to go. Oh, it's good. You know, I needed, to, I needed to get my spiritual filling for this week. And then we go out and we do whatever the frick we want to do for the rest of the week. See, Jesus is, is, is highlighting here that there are people who want to see Jesus in their life, want him to be their savior, and yet they don't want to obey him and do whatever he says to do. It's kind of, um, this is kind of a lot like sex outside of marriage, is we want the benefits and the privileges without the commitment. Is we want to enjoy Jesus, but we don't actually want to commit to him. We don't actually want to be in a relationship with him in which there is, uh, there is responsibility. We want to take all the blessings, all the good stuff, and then we're going to go and do what we want to do. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how this works. See, I, I've, over the years, I've kind of uh, gotten the impression from people that they think that somewhere in the Bible, there's like different degrees of Christianity. Like I have heard people in maybe this is not exactly what they say, but this is what I interpret it as, is I hear them say things like, well, I'm a Christian, but like, I'm not like a hardcore Christian, you know? Like, I still like to get like turned, you know? And so like, I do my thing, <laughs> but I love Jesus, you know? Like, and I hear that and I go, I, mm, I don't think that's how this works, is there isn't such thing as like a sort of Christian or degrees of Christian. Like, I'm 55% Christian, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I don't know if you know, but like I'm 55% Christian. That's like a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of Christian in me. See, Jesus, Jesus says um, Christianity is sort of like being human. You're not just like sort of human, you know? 
You're not just a little bit of human. You're either human or you are not human. And Jesus says you are either Christian or you are not a Christian. You are either 100% in or you're not in at all. In fact, the imagery that Jesus gives is he says that uh, people who are not 100% in for him are, are lukewarm and he vomits them out of his mouth. Great imagery is he says, if you are just like 50% Christian or you are 80% Christian, I throw you up. He says, you're either in or you're not in at all. And let me clarify, because I want you to kind of get confused here, is is some people interpret this as, okay, well then, um, I have to go and I have to act a certain way in order for, for Jesus to accept me and for me to be a Christian. And that's not at all what's happening here. It's actually the opposite. See, um, obedience, following Christ, is a response of our gift of faith. See, Jesus gifts us with this, this thing called faith in which we can follow him, and we can know him, and we can receive salvation. But it's not the thing that earns us salvation. So let me see if I can kind of give you a, a, an analogy of this. Is Let's imagine that you live far away, and for some reason, I sent you a present, Okay. This is never going to happen. But I sent you a present, okay? And I'm waiting, and I'm pretty sure it's been delivered, but I'm not exactly sure. And so I'm kind of waiting to see if you respond or not. Because the only way that I know if you've received the gift or not is if you let me know. If you call me. The same thing is true of our salvation is you receive the gift and there's nothing you can do. Salvation is completely free. But how do you know if you have received that gift or not? Through obedience. See, don't think that you can earn your salvation, but don't think that your salvation is completely without you uh, living in obedience to Christ. Continues on. This is the, this is the last part of it, and so I'm, I'll jump through it real quick. Is, it says this. It says, verse 32. Uh, While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So Jesus does another miracle. People are astonished, like this is crazy, but this is the interesting part I want to highlight. But the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day, said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So Jesus goes, he does another miracle. People are like, this is crazy. That dude could not speak before, and now he can speak this is, I've never seen anything like this. And the religious leaders are going, it's because he's from Satan, Avi, right? <laughs> Obviously it's Satan. And here's, here's what's interesting about this, is the Pharisees in this moment are confronted with two questions that every single person on the planet Earth will eventually have to answer. The first question is, and it's going to sound like an odd question, but let me explain it, is how do you explain the miraculous how do you explain the miraculous? See, the Pharisees saw something that was clear as day. Something miraculous happened. They just couldn't deny it. They couldn't get around it. It's right there in front of their face. And so they have to decide, um, how do we explain the miraculous that is right in front of us? Now, you might say, I've never seen a miracle before, so I don't have to worry about explaining the miraculous. I would say that is false. And here's why. is because I believe the greatest miracle that has ever been done is creation. The fact that you and I are sitting here on this tiny blue planet in this vast universe and the improbability of us being here is the biggest miracle that could ever have taken place. Now, I get really like hyped on this stuff. I get really amped about it. Um, so let me, let me kind of geek out a second here. Is 
14 billion years ago, there was nothing. Now, just imagine nothing for a moment. You're really good at that. Okay, nothing, the Big Bang. And everything comes from nothing in that moment. All of time and space and energy, everything comes. How do you explain that first? So, I mean, I've got many steps to go, but that's the first step. Where does that come from? You have to have some kind of timeless, spaceless, incredibly powerful, personal agent that can create something from nothing. Okay, so that's the first step. You got to figure out, okay, where does that come from? But not only does that happen, but then you have this expanding universe that blows up and becomes the size of our universe in like, I think it's like seconds, might be minutes, but becomes the size of our universe. And the constant and quantities that are programmed in the very beginning, like these little dials that are programmed, are so improbable that like if any of them were changed by just the slightest degree, nothing would exist. Everything would either, like if the gravity was different, it would either implode on itself or it would forever expand and there would be uh, no matter that would be able to clump together. The improbability of something like this happening is like me throwing a dart from here to the end of the universe, 14 billion light years away, and getting a bullseye. I'm not that good. That is improbable beyond belief. And then we have this planet, and the planet that we inhabit is in this place called the Goldilocks zone, in which we're like the perfect distance away from a sun, and then we have a moon, and then we have a, a, this, uh, the ability to be able to stop asteroids from hitting us, and it's just, the improbability just compiles on itself. Oh yeah, and then on this planet, this thing called life came to be, and we have no idea that it happened, and it's getting more difficult to figure out how life emerged. And then from the single cell organism, then it starts to replicate, and then it starts to grow, and then through this process of evolution, we have all of these different uh, uh, animals that arise and eventually come to this human, and then consciousness emerges through this little wet mud like meat thing, and we don't know how that happened, and then that mud meat thing is able to observe the universe around and describe and, and be able to reason and fit. This is crazy, okay? This is freaking crazy. And so when you look at just the fact that you and I are sitting here and we're able to think and we're able to, to uh, rationally uh, be able to look at the world around us, that is the grandest miracle ever. And so what do we do? Our options are, are this, is we can either try to explain it away. We can try to say, okay, you know, I'm going to come up with this incredible story, no matter how improbable it is, that like this universe, did, that's just crazy to me. Or we can try to deny it, and that's kind of what Eastern religions do, is it's an illusion. You're living in the matrix, my friend. That's kind of cool, but no, that's not a good, I don't think that's a good option. We can either ignore it, and that's what, honestly, probably most people try to do, is most people just ignore stuff like this. They think, you know, that's too big, that's too scary, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to worry about it, I'm just going to figure out what I'm doing tomorrow. And that's what most people do, is they just ignore it away. Or, you can acknowledge it, that this is an illusion, that we're not here by chance, that I can't just ignore it, but I have to acknowledge that I'm here because of the work of a creator, and the second question is, who is Jesus? When you look at Jesus, there's no denying that he's the most impactful person in all of human history, that he has literally turned the world upside down. And this same person has made some remarkable claims about himself. He said that, I am the invisible God made visible. 
That's a pretty big claim. And not only that, but like it's only through me that you can know the creator God. And it's only through that, through my offer of salvation that you can be saved and have eternal life. C.S. Lewis, I think, summarizes it best. He says that Jesus is either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. Either he is one of the best liars of all time. He had to be incredibly brilliant, and he just got insanely lucky that all of these things happened to align, and no one figured out that he is a, a, he's a scam. He's a lunatic in which he made these crazy claims, but here's the problem. Lots of people have come along, and they've made claims like that they are God, um, and usually we lock them up in a padded facility, and yet people gave their very lives for this person who made these claims, people who knew him personally, his own brother ended up dying for the belief that he was the Lord. And so the, the, the question that we have to ask ourselves finally is this, is uh, which one are you? Are you like the blind men? Where you go, give me some Jesus. I love Jesus. I love his blessings. Shower me in blessings. <laughs> but I'm gonna do my own thing. I'll take him on Sunday night, but I'm gonna leave him on Monday. Or are you more like the Pharisees in which you just really try to avoid admitting who Jesus is? You're just going to try to stay as far away from Jesus as you can so that you don't have to give over control of your life. Or will you be the one who looks at the Pharisee and looks at the blind men and says, I, I will be neither. I will be the one who learns from the mistakes that they have made. And I'll be the one that says, Jesus, I admit who you are. And in obedience, I eagerly follow you. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for, uh, for this church. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and to worship and to, to learn about you, Lord God. And um, I just pray that in this coming semester, as we head into a new year, that this year would be different than previous years for so many of these folks, Lord God. That it would be a year that we take our, our, our faith seriously, that we no longer try to be people who, who love you on the weekend and leave you on, on Monday, Lord God. But we are people who are fully submitted in obedience to you because of the incredible gifts that you have given us. I also pray for uh, this community, that you would grow us in unity, that you would grow us in purpose, that you would help us to stay focused on what it is you have called us is to become more like you and to bring more people into this place so they can meet you for the first time. And so, Lord God, we are excited to see what you're going to do in this coming semester, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.